Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Tim Sheehan. In this episode, we've partnered with engineering consultant Atkins to answer a question. It is something that has been causing project delays, cost overruns, and fractured relationships in the construction industry for years. It is part of the reason that construction has such low productivity outcomes compared to other sectors. And it is something that we have had the tools to change for some years now. But this hasn't happened and construction has not learned from its mistakes. In this case, quite literally, because this is an episode about learning from your mistakes. It is about the use of learnings from past projects to inform future decisions, a level of data that should be incorporated into design. It is something that in this episode we will call data-rich design, and its uptake by the industry has been sporadic at best, which is strange because the benefits are so obvious, it seems, to other industries besides construction. But first, let's take a step back and speak to two design and technology experts who you may remember from episode 68, The Future of Design. First is Leslie Ward, Global Head of Design Transformation for Atkins, based in the UK. For me, data-rich design is around a greater granularity of information related to the design solution that we're developing and that we're expecting someone to work from either to construct or to operate and maintain a facility. So the the amount of data that we can build into our designs in and, and store in one place in a 3D model, for example, is is much greater and, and, and we can go to much greater granularity than we have done historically with 2D tracing paper or paper drawings. And we are also joined by Donna Huey, Atkins Director of Client Technology, based in the US. I think for me, data-rich design is simply being able to use data to design better. And we have so many opportunities to leverage data at earlier stages in the design process as a result of more efficient tools and methods so we can optioneer better solutions and we can leverage data to do that. And for me, that's really harnessing the power of the data to deliver something better. For me, that's data-rich design. And I'd agree with that and go a stage further that to be able to do that, we need to gather data from previous solutions to understand how well, you know, how much they've cost to implement, how well they've performed in operation. And that data, that then becomes the data that we translate into insight that allows us to predict what might happen in a future project based on what's happened in the past. So the critical thing is data is, is about information from the past, and we can use that to predict what the future might look like. The new design tools available make it possible to incorporate vast amounts of data into a project's design phase. But this comes from the experience gained on previous projects. And that experience needs to be gathered, it needs to be understood, and it needs to be utilised effectively. We have wasted opportunity when we're not taking advantage of new tools and methods. And I think oftentimes individuals, and all of us are victims of this at times, don't take advantage of what's new because we lack the awareness or we lack the specific skill to take advantage of it. And so we either 
don't use it at all because we're afraid of afraid of it, or we use it inconsistently or not comprehensively, and as a result, we we just lose the efficiency gains that uh, the tools and methods are affording us. And I don't think we recognise the value in using data from past projects. Our industry is wedded to starting from scratch, from a blank sheet of paper almost. Creating from new each time, rather than relying on previous solutions, understanding what's worked and what hasn't worked. The data can tell us that. So the data can tell us if we got lots of questions back from the contractor on site, whether they understood our proposals or they wanted to change them um, for a whole host of different reasons. And, and we've got all of that knowledge in our business and in our organisations, but it, we're not, because of how it was historically structured, it's hard to tap into if you weren't involved in it. And unless you've been made aware of what insight we've got from that, then unless you've party to that and you go deliberately looking for it, then we're going to miss new opportunities. Whereas the world we're moving into is if we plan to be able to use that data and we structure it in the right way, knowing that we are going to use it not just for that particular design, but we're going to use it to inform us for improving further in the future, then that puts it on a whole different level for us if we start with that in mind. The way this works in practice requires a leap of faith. Leslie thinks this isn't something that comes naturally to people from technical or engineering backgrounds who almost want to know the answer before they've started the problem. We're asking an awful lot of people here to move into a space that they're not familiar with, not comfortable with, and and they don't trust what they don't know. And they've got to they've got to trust us. They've got to take that leap of faith that that this is, is actually going to make like their life better. It's going to make it easier for them to find information, to use information, to get feedback and to get insights. But all they see ahead of them is, is, is this activity that they've not done before. They haven't done the planning and preparation around, or around the information and the data. They've done it around the engineering or the architecture. Uh, a solution that they're going to develop. So, so, so it's that shift, and 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 this is quite a significant change for our industry. You know, the shift from two-dimensional work to three-dimensional work in the designs that we create and the models that we create requires someone to stop drawing the outline of a finished solution and to actually draw the individual components and fit them together in the model. That, that's a shift in mindset, that's a shift in approach, a shift in thinking. To then ask them to think about how they're going to structure the data and the information surrounding all of those 3D objects that, that become that sort of kit of parts almost that they built together to create the solution. You know, that's pushing them an even, a stage further again. And we're pushing people out of their comfort zone. It's about making sure that the design activities and data generated from a project are structured in such a way that it can be used in the future by different people with different requirements. So to contextualise that, for example, if, if, if we talk about various components that we might use in a design, so windows are manufactured to a certain standard, and have data requirements associated with them, which is to help the manufacturers meet 
certain compliance requirements for their windows. A door will be manufactured potentially to a you know, and, and have different data requirements for that manufacturer. A lighting, street lighting column might have a, you know, would, ha would have different requirements. But we bring all of those things together in our designs and, and the data that comes from the manufacturer is focused on themselves and how they manufacture it. It's not necessarily focused on the purpose that, and the information that we need to inform a design or that the client ultimately needs to inform how to operate and maintain those elements in the in the piece of infrastructure that they're incorporated into. So, so everyone's looking at data through their own lenses. And that's one of the biggest challenges that we've got. But it can be even more general. Take a project scope description. How many times must that be written out or copied and pasted over the course of the whole project? That project description will be written hundreds of times in the life of a project, if not thousands of times. And, and yet I'm not sure we recognise that simple description of the project as a piece of data that should be stored and reused time and time again. Whereas historically, what I believe happens is that it will be typed into each and every Word document every time we need to. And that's that's just one example of, of thinking about all of the data in the context of projects, not just the 3D manifestation of, of the design, but, but everything we do creates a piece of data. Have we thought about how much that's gonna get used, the importance of it, how to store it, how to structure it, and how we are going to use it? So data-rich design is something to strive for. But why is it not in wider use in the construction industry? As we mentioned, the supply chain is disconnected, standardising and optimising for its own best interests. One of the main reasons for this is there are not enough great examples of what success looks like in good data management and design delivery. According to Donna, we are currently having to translate across from adjacent industries, and this hasn't been a good enough demonstrator so far. We don't have enough tangible evidence. It hasn't hit a high enough watermark for people to really get it. The most important stakeholder in all of this is the asset owner at the end of the day. So until, that, until the asset owner really appreciates the potential life cycle cost benefits of leveraging data-rich design, delivery, and all of the connectedness that needs to happen to support that, that's the mark we need to hit. The requirements need to start from the owners in the contractual documents. And this is where designers need to step in and help guide clients down the right path, because they hold the most power. And we are seeing evidence of clients taking changes now, right? Um, starting to, to look at ways to enhance their design standards manuals, their quote-unquote CAD manuals, <laughs> you know, to, to really um, look at things differently. But it is, it's, it's a process that's going to take time. And there is a massive difference in maturity between asset owners, some of which are progressive, some not, but most of which have archaic asset databases. Another reason is that there have been no guiding ISO standards for design information management until recently. The industry needs to double down and keep educating owners and the supply chain. And we do have 
global um, global international standards now with the release over the past two years of the different parts of ISO 19650, the latest one being part five. ISO 19650 is organization and digitization of information about buildings and civil engineering works, including building information modeling, BIM. Part five of this standard covers a security-minded approach to information. So an example there is now having a standard to lean on, an internationally recognized standard to lean on for, for security. So security-minded approach to how we're managing data and starting to look at the discrete references considerations that need to be made relative to that particular topic. We've now come together as a standards community, global participation, and defined standards for information management for infrastructure delivery. So let's lean on that. Let's build on that together because then we can accelerate from a place of common language. These standards are based on general principles, not specificities. And so for something like security, right, one of the considerations is, <laughs> are you building a nuclear power plant or are you, you know, is, is this infrastructure for the sprinkler system at your local community park? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a two very extreme examples, but, you know, um, different types of infrastructure, different types of delivery require different types of security approaches in this, in the case of part five. So these considerations just lend themselves to making sure you are looking at the right thing, the right time, the right way. Different countries have different approaches to the ISO. And certainly the UK is much further along in their appreciation and adoption of it, stemming from BS 1192. BS112, Collaborative Production of Architectural, Engineering and Construction Information, Code of Practice. Various governmental requirements, but uh, sitting here in the United States, I'm starting to see very specific ISO 19650 references in our clients' information management requirements. I do think as the various organizations around the world have started to join together, uh, we're seeing more and more say, precipitation of, of the appreciation down into, into the regions. So it's coming together. I'm starting to see it come together more than I have seen in the past. And another reason that data-rich design is slow to proliferate is the significant variations in data storage and management that exist. Well, particularly with respect to some of the challenges and variations of the way we store data, the where, where we host design models, and as some of this moves into the cloud, different structures, different environments, that gain us efficiencies, but also open up, you know, data security, data exchange requirements. And the vendors play a big part here around the delivery of their platforms and how they're hosted and how they're secured. And I'm hopeful now that we do have ISO 19650 part five and a recognition around security minded approach that we can start to see that vendor community convene around that standard and that clients and owners recognize that standard. Because I think asset owners have been trying to fill a gap around what they believe 
needs to be in place to address data security in absence of there having been an international standard. Now that one is in place, if the vendor community starts to align to that, and if clients and asset owners start to align to that, I think we can we can take we can take this to a, a better, more consistent place. And Leslie makes an important point that the use of data in design depends very much on having access to that data. And with the present way our industry is organized, that can be a problem. So data security is really important. I have to start by saying that. But contracts are still very much written in the space of traditional ways of working, shall we say. So how how intellectual property rights are dealt with in the contracts. Many, many of our contracts mean the client retains all the intellectual property associated with the work that we do. There are immense benefits to be gained if that data is available to use on other projects and inform future decision-making. Leslie thinks of it as... It's almost like a bank that you've got to deposit some data into to be able to get the benefit from all of the data that's in there, if that makes sense. So so I think we need to, as an industry, we need to think very, very carefully around the contractual requirements and obligations around data and absolutely deal with the security issues, but, but recognise that there are benefits to be gained if we allow maybe in an anonymised format, certain project-related data to be used by organisations to give them a wealth, a broader picture of not just that one project, but if I can look across a portfolio of projects with different clients and start to draw insight from what might be working better in one sector than another sector. Or wherever we can share learning greater confidence over the outcomes that we're suggesting will be achieved from a broader quantity of data, then there's immense benefits from that. And at the moment, I think there are some challenges around what we can and can't do with that data that we really need to address. But there is one final point that came up while preparing this episode. One that Donna and Leslie hadn't thought of before. I'm excited to talk about this because I think we had a breakthrough last week when we were discussing this topic and we used the phrase generational silos. You know, we talk about silos all the time, right? There's different practices that work in silos, there's regions, there's businesses that work in silos, but our generations often work in silos too. And, you know, Leslie, I think we had a light bulb go off last week just between us as we were looking at our approach to scaling local ideas globally and we'd spent a good amount of time thinking you know who are the subject matter experts that we need to get to in each of the regions to contribute ideas about how we do things differently how we take the next step but when we step back and look at how we take the next step so much of that's going to come from the next generation And when we form stakeholder groups, when we look at canvassing subject experts, we need to recognize that we are sometimes, by default, working in silos across gen, and we need to broaden and ensure that those groups cross generations and that we don't find ourselves victims of our own rhetoric around breaking breaking down the silos to, to make this work. 
Educate, yes. Outreach, definitely. But sometimes the people with the answers to the future of your industry are there, just waiting to be asked. If we keep asking the guy that used, you know, the slide rule and the mylar, how can we make things better or different? We're not going to get anywhere near the same answer as we're going to get asking the, the young graduate out of school who's been trained up on all the new approaches and ways of working. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, John Young, Velo Mitrovic, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher, Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson, Series Supervision by John Young, and our own secure but shareable data bank is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner Atkins, and thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn.